Hello and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast, funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord community Patreon. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Kova. I'm Kikita Kaori. What have we got this week? This week, there has been a, a new updated Frequently Asked Questions FAQ for both the role-playing game as a whole, Path of Winds, Shadowlands, and the Mantis PDF, which is free for download from FFG, has also had some changes. There's been a new fiction, The Stained Cup, by Josiah Harris. So the new FAQ had some errata in it, some frequently asked questions, and a little bit of new game mechanics for you to potentially use. From the core book, Slippery Maneuvers was limited in its ops to just one opportunity, so you couldn't start stacking, obscuring terrain to do even better. This was actually fixed in the online copy. I got the original book, which apparently cannot be updated automatically over the internet. What a shame. <laughs> but if if you have a drive through RPG copy, it should tell you that it's updated. There have been some weapons changes. The Dao is Deadliness 6, up from 5. And the Jian has been changed so that the two-handed grip adds razor-edged and plus one deadliness. It's still not near a katana, and it still can't be used for Iejutsu, which we'll get to in a bit. So those are the only changes in the core book. In the Shadowlands book, there are quite a lot of changes in Maho. Commune with evil opportunity isn't just good for the current scene, it's for the next scene. So this makes Maho a lot more tempting because if you're going into court and you want that little Maho-y bonus for your court scene, you shouldn't be slashing your wrists in the middle of the courtroom. That just doesn't work too well. So it lets you, if you were an evil Maho Sukai, do your evil in one scene and then spend the opportunity and it carries on for the next scene, and even further scenes with additional opportunity. And then there's another change where they can increase the range by one per opportunity. The main thing with the Maho changes, it just makes them a bit more tempting and functional for your you know, villains to... Yes, your villains, because you shouldn't be doing Maho because it's bad. Meanwhile, Path of Waves has got a few. Voice of the Wilds, you get to choose one of two rituals, not invocations. And the Kamaris Shieldbearer, it originally said that they had access to Earth Shuji. Uh, now they have access to all Shuji. They had a slight correction. It said in their curriculum that they had access to the Iron Shell style kata and the outfit gets a scimitar as well as a yari or naganada and a shield so this is actually a buff to the kamara shield bearer which when we looked at the path of ways we thought it was pretty strong school as is now it's even stronger the main strength of it of course is in the shield stats so yeah this is a solid wall of a person that I would not want to face in a dark alley. <laughs> Meanwhile, improvised weapons, things like chairs and loot, sake bottles and scroll cases, they now use the unarmed skill, not the melee skill, which 
brings it in line with other improvised weapons. The iron scabbard is still melee. And if you're stabbing someone with an umbrella, be warned it is now a two-hand grip, not a one-hand grip. Very important to keep in mind. So those were the actual erratas. The, ch- the changes to NPCs, they were to some of the fixed NPCs in the campaign that kind of got a little ridiculous on their stats. In the FAQ section, they talked a bit about simultaneous effects. They uh, suggest you always use the universal tiebreaker uh, rules from the core book. So if you have two simultaneous effects going off, you want to resolve them where it's PCs first, then NPCs and adversaries, then minions. If two PCs are tied, then you randomize it with a coin flip. There's no fixed non-random simultaneous thing for that. The non-random types of, of simultaneous resolution are specific to initiative. So, otherwise, flip a coin. <laughs> or rock, paper, scissors, whatever. Meanwhile, if you get an advantage inverted, which is where somebody spends a void point or the GM does a mean thing to you, where your advantage now acts as a disadvantage, you always get one void point. Whereas before it was only down to whether or not the reroll fails. Now, if someone inverts it, you get the void point. Right. So if the advantage is inverted, you would always get a void point if the GM says, I'm sorry, you're big, so now you can't fit through that little hole. So now your advantage is a disadvantage. You get a void point. The question was whether the disadvantage, if it forces a reroll and you fail, you get two void points or just one. You just get one, but it doesn't matter or not whether you succeed on the reroll. Minions don't have void. Poor things. Adversaries seem to have half of their void ring in void points at any one moment. Depends on your adversary, obviously, if you want to make a change. Adversaries are meant to be tough anyway. And if NPC is using Maho, because if you're a PC, whether or not you have tainted rings and how many tainted rings is important, but you don't keep track of that with NPCs. So if the NPC is not stated to be tainted then they have no tainted rings as far as Maho is concerned. If they are stated as being tainted, they have two tainted rings. And if they are straight up otherworldly, they have four tainted rings. So that's how that works if you want to see what benefits or penalties (laughs) they get depending on their rings. Another clarification. Iijitsu requires a one-handed razor-edged grip. So even if it's got razor-edged when it's two hands or something else involved, you can only do it if that weapon you're using has a razor grip while you're using one-handed. They should just change it so instead of it's razor-edged, there's an eijitsable kind of tag. Because it's this, but not when it's this. But when it's this, but not on Thursdays. I think they should say, yes, you can eijitsu with this. No, you can't. But then make it so... We now know Yajitsu, one-handed, razor-edged. And if it isn't one-handed or razor-edged, you can't do it. You can still just use water and draw an attack with it. So let's do that. Finally, for this particular section, target numbers for multi-target attacks default to the highest target number amongst the targets, not a sum. You don't add them all together. And it's also not a choice that the 
person makes. You don't say, I'm going to target the least difficult to hit and then everyone around them because that makes my life easy. It's always the most difficult one because life is meant to be a challenge. So if you have a whole group of people and you want to thunderclap strike them, then your target is the one guy in air stance and the rest of them can all be in fire, but they are protected by the one guy in air. Yeah. That's just the way it is. Those are the FAQs. Uh, There's also a section that is about modifying the TM and trying to give lots of examples of when you would modify the TN from the base numbers. Often, it seems TN2 is pretty normal for a lot of tasks. That's often your standard. And then they talk about how you would make the TNs harder, what circumstances it would be to make things harder, or what would make it easier. The range for TN modification is plus one to plus three or minus one to minus three. So if you want to make something really super hard, you add plus three to it. It gives a ton of examples. Yeah, I didn't want to talk today about all the examples. You should go read it. But some of the examples they give are not just, hi, you're instead of jumping on the roof, you're now jumping on a slippery snow-covered roof. That might be a, a very simple physical one. But it could be, hi, you are talking to an NPC and trying to persuade him, but you found out what his ninjo is and you're appealing to his ninjo in the words you are saying that would drop his TN. It's a way that role-playing in the social stats modifies the TN of the uh, persuasion goal you're trying to accomplish. I thought that was particularly relevant for a lot of things that make the role-playing count. Here's one way you make the role-playing count. You let the role-playing advise raising or lowering the TN. Yeah. In in theory, this has been what you're meant to do anyway. But there, up until this document, there really hasn't been much in the way of guidelines. When should it apply? How big? That sort of thing. Here we have a really nice big lump of guidelines. I think that's really good. We might look at those in more detail later on. There are also guidelines on staking honor and glory, which is a thing that has, was mentioned in the core rulebook, but again would like more guidelines on like when they apply and what kind of effects they have so you're staking your honor your glory and possibly even your status and the way it's given in the core book there doesn't seem to be any benefit to doing this it's like i will do this thing and you say it publicly and you're staking your glory right if you fail to do the thing, because you've stated it publicly, you're going to lose some glory because everyone starts saying, oh, that person, they keep saying they're going to do things and they don't do them. Puh, I don't think too much of them. And similarly with honor and stuff like that. But there needs to be some kind of benefit. So we now have some guidelines on there. If you're making a personal oath, like I will not fail on this thing, that's staking honor. If you're declaring publicly like, I will find that bandit and defeat them. That's staking glory. And I'm not quite sure about the status because status is a difficult one to stake. Yeah, you know, if you made a contract around it, I, as a courtier personal to the Crane Dan Champion, 
guarantee that this will be the case and this is my contract on this, then that's taking status. If you call upon your status to get you something, that's it. So if these all combine, then it should have an additional extra benefit because you're risking even more. The examples they give in here are, they have a lot of them and they're worth reading. They're still a little iffy what the benefit of staking honor or glory or status is over rolling. Basically, if you stake honor or glory or status, in the examples they give, you don't have to roll. Unless you do, there is a special note saying, if this still needs a roll, it lowers the TN of it. However, we've already established that the TN's range will, in general, be between 1 and 5. Now, that could be pretty hard to do a TN one, but you could also find a lot of ways to lower that TN. It's very hard for me to figure out why you would stake over, for example, trying to find an easier way to lower the TN around something. These examples don't use staking as a um, fail-safe mechanism, which is where I think I would put uh, staking honor and glory. You really need to do this thing you failed to do this thing on the straight-up roll. Now you have to go to your backup me- mechanism. If you wanting to lower the target number to do the thing, let's just give an example. There is a mission to go kill a horrible bandit, and several people are wanting it because you reckon it's going to be really good for your reputation, and you want it. And the, you, you get told that just asking is going to be quite a big ask because there's someone else in the room who's probably going to get the job. If you want to try to lower the target number, that's going to take time. You've got to get an action. You've got to do something in order to lower that target number or someone else is going to. You might not have time. There might not be space for a role. That's when you loudly get up and you declare that you will stake your personal glory on doing this mission. So it can be a failback, but it can also be a shortcut. So instead of having to do a lot of scheming and finding out all this information to get the target number down, you can do it in one thing by staking. That might be another way of looking at it. Another way you could potentially use it as an outburst type. You're in this high-tense situation. You're at that moment. You're compromised you use this and make a powerful oath about it. You could do that even if you're compromised. There's nothing in there requiring rolling. Therefore, you could do it when you're compromised. I would probably, especially if it was dramatic enough, use that as an outburst. They have um, a number of optional yeah. rules going. So they talk about campaign types. Whether you want to play it more anime-esque, if you want to play it gritty and realistic, if you want to play super courtly intrigue. They have a whole bunch of optional rules from ones that they've cited in the books and a few other optional rule sets they have here in the off-the-Q. And then they give, if you want to do this kind of campaign, we recommend using this set of optional rules. If you're doing this other kind, use this different set. So the optional rule sets they refer to, and I'm not going to list all the different kinds of campaigns they cite, are bonds, cross-ring opportunities. Um, That's letting you use an opportunity from fire in water, maybe at a higher cost. 
grittier games, that's your uh, super deadly weapons and stuff, experience PC, giving your PCs a little bit more experience off the bat, run roll duels, simplifying your duels down to one, playing with a tactical grid. They have risky checks, which is something we'll talk about here in a moment. Road in Honor and Glory. This is where you break away from your clan preferences for honor and glory, interpretation of them, and uh, focus on your own interpretation of them. Shoddy improvised weapons, which we'll also talk here. Uh, Sub-skills, because when you really need to be good at Ikebana and not at origami. Trifling breaches and small sacrifices. Talking about these real small honor and glory loss and unmasking for beneficial effect, specifically mechanical effect, because normally unmasking is just RP benefit or disadvantage. It lists the different combinations you might want for different kinds of campaigns. I, there is a lot of suggested different campaign styles. So I'm going to just run through one of them, and there's a whole bunch of different ones. But say, heroic action. Rockgun is a setting defined by choice and consequence, but that does not mean that there's no room in it for stories of daring feats, grand gestures, and heroes who save the day. Campaign goals. The goals of this playset is to empower players to take exciting, creative actions and reward them for doing so. This does not apply only to combat, but also to other types of encounters, for which it provides players have a wide number of tools at their disposal to cleverly solve problems and vanquish their nefarious foes. The optional rules used, bonds, cross-ring opportunities, experienced PCs, 20 plus starting XP, range bands on a tactical grid, risky checks, shoulder improvised weapons, unmasking for effect. So each of these different campaigns have the paragraph setting, the campaign goals, which optional rules you plug in or leave out. There's like a couple of pages of different campaign styles that you can use, which I think uh, makes Alphava much more flexible. I really quite like that. One of the optional rule sets is risky checks. Let's say I want to throw myself over the edge of the cliff and grab a branch on the way down to get into a cave on the side of the cliff. That's riskier than other means of doing so. If I do that risky check, if I succeed at that check, it means I get additional bonus successes. It's a TN3 to do that, but I make it and therefore with zero additional successes. I just make my TN3. However, it's a risky check three, so it automatically assumes that adds two bonus successes to it. So it's like I succeeded with two bonus successes as well, because that's how risky it is. If I fail, then I get shortfall. So if I don't hit that TN3, then I am not only not where I wanted to be, I'm in a worse off position. It rolls me back. It, it, it takes away some of my previous successes. This doesn't, by default, make bonus successes or shortfall relevant. So presumably you're going to be wanting to make bonus successes helpful in some way and you're going to make shortfall important for some in some way so shortfall is where you didn't succeed but instead of just saying oh you fail somehow you're one off the target number so that means something if you're two off the target number 
that means something else. So you'd have to be using those rules anyway for risky checks to really have an effect. The obvious one is momentum. If you're doing something that involves momentum, because you get bonus successes adding to your momentum score and shortfall can take away from your momentum score. A lot of roles don't come with that by default. So that's the thing to think. Another and optional rule set is shod- shoddy improvised weapons, which just means if you use them on an attack roll, it gets damaged. And if it's already damaged and you use it on an attack roll again, it gets destroyed. Yep. I thought it was interesting. It doesn't matter if it hits or not. <laughs> yeah, which makes, honestly, that makes sense because you watch the average bar fight. If you miss with your chair, then, you know, you'll hit something else and break it. You can spend opportunities on the attack check to keep your weapon from being damaged, which I can only assume is how Jackie Chan uses ladders for so long. So I like that, actually. I think that's, I think that's a, a, a neat little thing to add. I would probably use shoddy improvised weapons most of the time because that way you have to keep improvising as you just break everything you use. I have to come up with something else. Uh, and finally, we've got the Mantis PDF, which has a change in it. So if you, you, you'll want to download the latest one. Uh, for Tejinka, which is one of the, the Mantis Shugenja school, their ability to avoid the effects of their spells also applies to Backlash, which I believe was explicitly the other way around before. So if you do a fire spell and you get spiritual backlash, which is keeping three strife or more on your result, everything in the target area gets hit by the fire spell, only you don't. And in fact, I believe it's you and up to your school rank in Friends. As we discussed on the Discord, a few people have gone (laughs) deliberately invoking backlash. Seems a bit rude to the kami. (laughs) But it opens up some interesting avenues. The next thing we had this week, and this kind of got snuck out on Twitter. I don't know why they keep not putting their fictions on their page, but they aren't advertising it yet. It's a fiction called The Stained Cup, and it is by Josiah Duke Harris, who I don't think has written anything for the storyline yet, but I've seen the name before, so maybe he's an author for the RPG. Hante Soteri, having fled from his rescue by Doji Kwanan, wakes up in the isolated hut of the potter and Ronin Yotsu, who found him at the bottom of a ravine and carried him to his hut for healing and care. Yotsu does not believe Soteri is truly the son of the emperor, because who would, and does not bow to his demands like Soteri expects, but he does help Soteri get better and walk again, Unfortunately, once he is well enough, Soteri decides to, against Yotsu's wishes, go down the mountains himself. There, he encounters a group of ronin led by the woman Risa, and they kill Yotsu and capture Soteri. So, he is in a mess. Yeah, so, Lord Nuggets, Yotsu is a name that has shown up before in Old 5R lore. In Old 5R lore, Hante Jodan, the current emperor, and his pregnant wife, and his son, Hante Sotori. At one point, the empress and her son, Hante Sotori, and her unborn child uh, were captured by bloodspeakers. Yotsu was a ronin who substituted his own child for Sotori 
to rescue the young heir. Although, unfortunately, he wasn't able to save the Empress, and her child ends up becoming Daigatsu, and that's a whole thing. That has not happened. So she was never kidnapped. Satori never needed to be rescued by a random Ronin. So one can assume this is the same Yotsu. It's a bit of an odd choice to use his name otherwise. But what he is doing is somewhat diff- different. He has rescued Satori and picked the kid up and took him back to his hut and set his leg and looked after him and put up with his terrible attitude, for which he deserves all the medals. But his end came about slightly differently, sadly. So we're assuming he's just, this is the same guy, only his role in New 5R is different. We also learn in this story that in Rokugan, it is considered disrespectful to hunt crane. Sotori asks, why don't you shoot that crane for dinner? And uh, he says, that's disrespectful. Also, I don't want to lug that great big huge bird all the way back home. That's true. They are big. <laughs> We're not quite sure where this is. It's mountains, but there's mountains at the top, bottom, and middle of rock again. We suspect this is the spine of the world mountains, which are the middle ones, and that would be on the way to the Monastery of the Winds. Satori has somehow managed to get himself very high up in a mountain in that he fell down a ravine and was still fairly high up a mountain. But he was mounted when we last saw him escaping from Kuanon's rather botched attempt to rescue Satori. So he could have gone quite a ways before he fell off his horse. We're not quite sure where this is happening, but there's it's in a mountain. We know that much. Mm-hmm. And, and Satori doesn't remember because he hit his head quite hard. Yotsu has a price on his head put there by Lady Matsu, the Ronin talk, and it sounds like they're looking to collect that bounty on Yotsu. They aren't looking for Satori. I think Lady Matsu, in this sense, is probably Matsusuko. She is pretty much boss lady Matsu. This is where we come across one of the problems with the setting, where there are like a thousand, thousand Matsus. And Lady Matsu is... Could you narrow it down? There's hundreds of Lady Matsus. Do you mean the lady? Like the one and only? Like the top one or one of the others? Yeah, it's a probably good guess. This is uh, Matsutsuko. Yeah, and though there are signs on there, that would indicate he would probably have been a lion, though he did have an unknown mon in his possession. Since they are seeking a bounty, but this isn't something Matsuko isn't interested in, and he's ex-lion, it seems very likely to me, or at least the most likely possibility is that Yotsu is someone who would be considered a deserter from the lion armies, a samurai who was a deserter. He had a wakazashi. We don't know why he might have done that. He could have done some other wrongdoing, but they don't mention his crime. They more mention the bounty. And he seems to think that he could just pay them off as well, potentially. That doesn't imply a hugely high bounty or some other cause. So, yes, absolutely. It's pretty much policy whenever you have a large army. Deserters are a thing. There are a million reasons why someone could desert, and it's a perfectly normal background for a ronin to have be a deserter on the run from or in hiding from people who might be looking for them for desertion 
Probably the most interesting thing about Yotsu's background is he states that he has fought in the Emperor's Wars, all of them, which I found a very interesting statement. I can't think of any wars off the top of my head in 1123 Rokugan that will count as the Emperor's Wars. So I'm very interested in what he means by that. Unfortunately, we're not going to find out, but... I don't think he's left it clarified, yeah. No. But uh, sadly, as I say, um, he's not going to tell us because Risa, who was the head of these bounty hunters, she was really fast. And she may possibly be X-Crane. She's got white hair as a ronin. And she closed a lot of distance real fast, which is that rank six Kikita technique. So I'm thinking she's probably Kikita school. Rank six, whoosh, that'll be scary. But yeah, bad news. Seriously, I was so surprised when it happened because the, the setup up to that point was like, oh yeah, and then Yoss is going to come and save the... Oh, oh, he didn't. <laughs> uh, I felt bad for him. I liked him. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I liked him. I thought it was really nice. This is exactly the person who Satori needed. And there are even hints that he might be heading in the right direction until right at the end. He suddenly goes, no, I'm going to be an opinionated git. I'm going to walk down the mountain, because I'm a prince. And then he breaks everything. It's his own stupid fault. I have a hope that this is a turning point for him, because there is a similar situation with Kachiko, where there was a single line in one of her fictions. And I went, is that the start of a change? And then in the next fiction, it really was. So I'm hoping something similar is happening here. But um, it's not looking good for Satori. He has made some poor life choices. He does have a point in the story where he is having a dream. And dreams are such a great place to throw in foreshadowing and prophecy that it's always worth looking at when someone's having a dream. I'm not sure whether this is a prophecy or dreaming of previous events. I think it's a combination of both. I think that timing-wise, he did end up falling in the big storm that happens in A Night Storm Rages when uh, Kuanan is busy fighting to take back Kuden Kikita and there's lightning and thunder and stuff. I think that's when it's happening. So he is remembering that. But I was really interested where he sees like all these formless shapes around him swiping at each other with blades and then two colossal figures clashing overhead, spraying blood. And all the thunder and lightning, it sounds prophecy-ish. But then again, it could also be an exaggerated dream of Koanan's attempt to rescue him. And the two colossal figures could be Koanan and Hitomi. Because that's what I immediately saw. That's he was basically remembering very vaguely and slightly feverishly those events. It could be, but then again, the shapes swiping at each other. It's a war. It's rock again. There's going to be war. <laughs> it's, that's not a difficult prophecy to make. I foresee war. It's rock again, mate. There's going to be war. I, I'd be impressed if someone. I foresee peace, and everyone goes, "What? Never." <laughs> So yeah, it could be prophecy. It's hard to say. That sounds like it's about it for us this week. Do you have any call-outs? Obviously, we have our usual call-outs to our sister podcast, the L5R LCG podcast. And we have two actual play role-playing podcasts, Crimson Gold Agonies and Fortune and Strife. So you can go and check those out. 
Things are getting spicy. Mm-hmm. We have oh, links no. to all of those <laughs> in our show notes. All our podcasts are funded by the Discord Patreon, which supports our editing costs and our ever-patient editors, as well as our website. For our patrons, we have special bonus content like adventure seeds or watch parties. We also have early previews into those actual play podcasts. Thank you very much. You can find us at our website called gamespod.com. We are on Twitter at twitter.com courtgamespod. And our Patreon is at patreon.com slash courtgames. That's it for us for this week. This is Kikita Kaori. May the fortunes favor you. And until we meet again, keep your jade handy. <laughs>